Good morning. So glad to be with you in worship today. If you have your copy of God's Word, go with me to Colossians chapter 2. It is an exciting morning as we're celebrating and honoring our seniors. There's also a lot of excitement happening in our church. I want to give you an update on where we are in regards to our Proclaim initiative. Proclaim is a two-year spiritual journey. Our church began in February, uh, stepping out in faith and believing God for all of the opportunities and expansion uh, that he seems to be entrusting to our care. And uh, so thus far, uh, we need $10 million uh, over the next two years, and we have received $9.5 million in pledges uh, to date and $3.1 million in receipts. And so we praise God for that. And for all of you that are participating with Mary and me as a part of our Proclaim initiative, thank you. Thank you for your sacrificial gift to God's church. And uh, I want to invite anyone who is not yet participating to please take advantage of this. We really do need your help. And so when we're dismissed, you'll see uh, Proclaim commitment envelopes on those tables in the back of our worship center or at Guest Central. If you want to have a conversation with any staff member about our Proclaim initiative, what it is and why we believe God has led us to do that. We would love to buy you a cup of coffee and share the vision that God has placed on our hearts. And speaking of transition is May 28th. You'll want to mark your calendars. That Sunday morning will be the first Sunday of a nine-week stretch where we will not be meeting in this room. So we'll be meeting in the student ministry building uh, for the summer months because this room is getting uh, renovated. And so starting on Sunday, May the 28th, uh, join us for worship in the student ministry building. And our students being displaced all morning will now meet for their life group ministry on Wednesday nights at 630. So grateful for our student ministry pivoting. That's kind of a regular rhythm in the life of our church. So I'm grateful for our students filling that Wednesday night gap with their life group ministries. But our worship gathering will continue to happen. It will be vibrant. It will be exciting all summer long. And we will be meeting in the student ministry building starting on Sunday, May the 28th. I also just want to take a moment um, as your pastor and speak to something, the tragedy that all of us watched unfold on the news yesterday afternoon. No doubt you've probably read at this point about what happened uh, at the outlet malls in Allen. And, um, you know, anytime you, you see and witness these moments of unspeakable tragedy and just acts of evil um, that show up um, inexplicably uh, in our lives and they spill out uh, onto our communities, uh, it, it's the right time uh, for us to uh, just go to God in prayer and, and to not try to solve all of these dilemmas ourselves with immediate responses, but rather just to petition the throne of heaven and to ask God to provide uh, what only he is able to do. And, and so we're going to do that here in just a moment. As a, a, a family of faith, we're just going to pray together. Um, and, and we're we're just going to petition the throne and ask God uh, to work in the midst of this crisis. And, and as you think about this, just in the days ahead, and you're praying about it with your families or in your time with the Lord, I'll, I'll just give you what I think are four quick prayer points. We're going to pray these in just a moment. The first is this. Uh, let's pray for God's peace in the midst of chaos. I've seen some of the videos, and so have you. And it was chaotic to be certain. And, and the chaos hasn't necessarily subsided just because the event itself has stopped. And, and so the Bible says that Jesus provides a supernatural peace 
Um, in fact, he says, uh, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. So let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so we need to beg God for peace in the midst of chaos. I would say the second thing is we need to beg God uh, for his presence and the brokenness. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 18, that God is near to the brokenhearted. And this morning, no doubt, there are people whose hearts are broken, families whose lives have been shattered. And we need to beg for God's supernatural presence uh, and nearness to those whose hearts are broken. I I think it'd be appropriate for us to thank God for the heroism of the first responders that ran toward the gunfire. And it's always the right thing for us to do when you see an individual that serves as a first responder or in one of our branches of the armed services for us to uh, give honor to whom honor is due and to thank them for the selfless and sacrificial work that God has entrusted to them. Yesterday, uh, that act of evil was stopped because someone was willing to lay their life on the line uh, uh, for the sake of others. And we need to thank God for for that heroism. And, And then lastly, I would say we need to beg God to bring good from evil because he's the only one who's able to. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 50, in the redemption narrative of the Bible, that what man meant for evil, God can use for good. And I don't know how good will come from this or any other tragedy that we watch unfold in our lives, but I believe God is the only one who is able to bring it. And so let's pray together. If, if you are sitting with someone that you know and have a relationship with, would you just grab their hand? We're just going to go family style. Put your arm around them, hold their hand, and, and let's just petition the throne of heaven. And, and beg God to do what only he can do. Father, in Jesus' name, our hearts are heavy as we come before you yet again because of a tragedy that we have witnessed uh, in our communities right here in our backyard. God, I am begging you in a supernatural way to bring peace in the midst of chaos. I am begging you, Lord Jesus, that you would bring peace into homes. I'm praying that you would bring peace into hearts, into hospital rooms. Today, there are still people recovering, fighting for their life. Lord Jesus, just bring peace in the midst of all of that chaos. Father, I am asking in a supernatural way that you would draw near to those whose hearts are shattered. As your word says you will, you will save those whose spirits have been crushed. And so would you draw near to the brokenheartedness of our communities and those families that have been affected by this act of evil? God, I do want to thank you for the heroic efforts of the first responders and and those who have been instruments of of justice and care and concern for the good of others. God, we thank you for that. And ultimately, God, I ask that you would work good in the midst of what is so obviously bad. I don't know how it's, it's always times like this when we're reminded of just how little control we actually have, but God, everything over our head, it rests beneath your feet. And so we are asking collectively together today, Lord Jesus, that you would work good in the midst of this evil. We trust you. We ask this in faith, believing in you. We pray to you and through you in the name above every name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, we are pressing pause on our series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And in particular, we're kind of concentrating these last several weeks and in the weeks to come on the seven sign miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. And Now this week I wanted us to talk about what it looks like to walk out a faithful life lived alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in light of today being Senior Recognition Sunday, because inevitably this is the big challenge that our seniors are going to face, is what does it look like to be faithful to God in my day-to-day living 
for him. But I would tell you this is a challenge we never outgrow. This is the fundamental challenge is what does it look like for all of us who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ to live that out day to day in all areas of our life with a faithfulness and an integrity that Jesus Christ deserves. And so on Monday of this week, our staff always gets together the first Monday of every month for a chapel, for a time of worship and prayer and praise. And, uh, and Cole uh, Travis, our high school pastor, brought a great devotional to us as a team. And it came out of Colossians 2. And as I was sitting there thinking about that, I, it caused me to, to determine that that would be an appropriate place for us to go as well. Because I want us to be a people who understand what the scriptures say about how we are empowered. What is our source of strength? What is our fuel that enables us to be faithful in how we live our lives for God? And so as we begin our time together, we're going to read how the Apostle Paul encourages this idea of walking or living in Jesus Christ among all of us who belong to him. Now, a little bit of context here in Colossians. If you're not familiar in your New Testament, you'll find 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll have Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And in Colossians, Paul is writing this letter to a church that is attempting to navigate a season where bad ideology and false doctrine have begun to commingle with the truth and orthodox belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so inevitably, I would just say this, these are a confused people. And some of that confusion has crept into the church. Well, guess what? 2,000 years later, not much has changed, right? And so Paul is going to write to bring clarity on how these people can live faithfully in light of true orthodox belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is Colossians chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse number 6. Colossians chapter 2, start with me in verse number 6. If you're there, say, I got it. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, just underline that word walk. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding. If you mark or highlight in your Bibles, underline that word. Abounding in thanksgiving. Paul establishes quite clearly for us immediately what is the foundational Christian understanding that we don't live for our faith in Jesus, but rather we live from our faith in Jesus. This is orthodox. This is foundational. If you and I are going to have any flourishing in this faithful attempt to live our lives with Jesus Christ, it comes from this understanding. Watch. We don't live for a relationship with Jesus Christ. We live from a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not working and living and loving so that God would show us affection, but rather because he has shown us affection, then we are able to live and work and love in light of that. And it's important for us to understand the difference because if not, we'll be resigned to frustration and discouragement. This idea of living out of our identity in Christ versus living for an identity from him, it's what separates our Christian doctrine, which is established upon relationship, from other worldviews and systems of belief which are rooted in religious practice. Mary and I had uh, dinner with friends uh, this last week, and on Wednesday night the conversation was really great around the dinner table, and we were talking just about backgrounds and upbringing, and, and uh, one of the guys at dinner just said, 
that he was raised in a, in a system of belief that had a lot of practices and rituals that were a part of the religious experience. But at the end of the day, they, they proved to simply be barriers that kept him at a distance from God. And what we know is that Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven so that we might be brought near. In other words, there is no barrier between you and I and a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But rather, Jesus Christ has come to usher in a personal relationship that we can individually have with him. In verses 6 and 7 here, there are things that Paul says are done that we have received Christ. This is a past tense work. It's a completed work. Again, it's not anything we're attempting to earn. And then he says, we are rooted and built up in Jesus. This is the work of our establishment that leads to the ongoing work of maturation in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is what theologians tell us is the doctrine of justification. That's salvation. That is right standing. The declaration that you are right with God because of your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You're justified. And then from there, you are being sanctified. That is the ongoing work of God's Holy Spirit that roots out the parts of the flesh that continue to remain. And so this is an ongoing work, but it is an ongoing work that is established. We are rooted, and Paul says then, built up. And so Paul says this idea from this place of God's work established and God's work ongoing that we live out with our faith founded in him, this is how we walk in him, right? So again, verse six, look what he says. Therefore, as you receive, that's past tense, this is a work that is done, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That word walk that I had you highlight a, minute, a moment ago, it means to continue alongside of. It's the idea that as you are established in Christ Jesus, in other words, you understand your right standing before God is established in Christ Jesus. So listen, don't try to figure this out on your own. So walk in him. You are rooted and you're being built up. And this is all the work of God in Christ Jesus in your life and in mine. And what's more, and I, I love this, is that Paul's instruction to live out our faith, which is founded in Jesus, we are rooted and we're being built up. So the work of establishment and the ongoing work of maturation. He said this is a work that should be done with thanksgiving. I had you highlight that word abounding. It literally means to excess. It means overflowing. In other words, fam, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are instructed because you understand the work of Christ Jesus in your life, what God has done and what he continues to do, then it ought to result in a heart of gratitude, an appreciation, a thanksgiving as you walk with him. So I, I, I've used this before. I told you uh, Christians should, y'all remember the uh, children's um, character Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. So my favorite characters on Winnie the Pooh were actually not uh, Pooh Bear, um, but Tigger, yeah, and Eeyore. And, and I would just say Christians need to channel their inner Tigger, right? Because God has done a good work in us. He's done a good work for us. And, and we need to suppress the temptation to want to live a life of Eeyore. Y'all know Eeyore? Oh, bother, right? Like, like come on. We got to be Tiggers. Why? Because when you just stop, like, like think about it. When you just stop for a moment and think about what God has done for you 
And then when you let your mind drift a little further than that, what he's doing in you right now, <laughs> like that's a tigger, right? That was good. I don't know. Come on. I'm just saying, right? No, no more Eeyore because I know Connor Bales before Jesus showed up. And I, I, it, it frightens me to think about where I would have been had he not done that. Right? And so we live with this abounding thanksgiving, this spirit of gratitude and excitement. Why? Because we are rooted and established in Christ Jesus and we're built up in him. So we walk in him. We continue alongside of. Keep reading. Pick it up in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. Uh, I titled this morning's message, Avoiding Capture, because I think Paul is drawing upon something here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And so Paul says, as you walk in him, there are some things that we need to understand a faithfulness to him is going to require. And the first is this, avoid the capture of the enemy. Avoid the capture of the enemy. Now, I'll just say I am not a guy who believes that the devil is behind everything. I completely believe in the reality of a real enemy that is actively at war against God and those who belong to him. Yes, I believe in spiritual warfare. It is biblical. I have experienced it, and it is true. But sometimes what we chalk up as spiritual warfare is really our foolishness. I've had more than one counseling appointment, mostly with men who say something like, well, pastor, you know, I just... I don't know what was going on, but the devil was tempting me, and ultimately I think the devil made me do it. And I'm like, no, bro, you're dumb. That's on you. Right? But 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 does say that the God of this world, lowercase g, that's our enemy Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So we do have a very real enemy. He is working to keep those blind who do not see, and he is working to keep those who do see from walking in the truth that it might allow. And so the Bible says Satan, he's a liar, he's a deceiver. He's the one who prowls around us like a lion seeking who he might devour. And anything that seeks to capture the thoughts or the convictions, the understanding, the commitment, or the confidence of someone who belongs to God is demonic. And it's an instrument of Satan waging war against God and all those who belong to him. And Paul says, and there are two tactics that show up here. The first is philosophy. Philosophy. This is the idea of any worldview that can be held that either diminishes, eliminates, or attempts to equalize the gospel with that worldview or belief. I see this most often in political extremism and the insatiable cultural appetite toward inclusivity. Any system of belief or worldview that would attempt to diminish, eliminate, or equalize itself with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is demonic. It's a philosophy, and the enemy is using those kinds of things to draw God's people off sides all the time. The second thing Paul says is beyond philosophy is empty deceit. This is simply false doctrine. 
This is simply bad orthodoxy. And as much as Paul warned the first century church to avoid this kind of false doctrine that might attempt to work its way in, I would say it's just as relevant to God's church today. In fact, I would tell you a lot of the mainline denominational decline is because of false doctrine that has crept in. And here's what I mean. The moment that a person decides that some of God's word is not applicable is the moment they have decided all of God's word is not applicable. So the moment we deviate from God's word as a, as a beginning, then by that logic, there is no end to where that can be stopped. And this is a problem. And this is empty deceit and, and philosophy. And ultimately, it lead, watch this, it leads to Christians being captured by it. And Paul warned the church against it. Keep reading, pick it up in verse 11. In him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, this is a supernatural work. By putting off the body of the flesh by, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So the first thing in our continuing to walk in him our faithfulness founded in Jesus is that we avoid the capture of the enemy. The second thing is we stand upon the spiritual circumcision of Christ. We stand upon the spiritual circumcision of Christ. And again, this doesn't have to be said, but I'll say it anyway. The work of God in the life of a person who belongs to him is a spiritual work with practical implications. It is not a practical work with spiritual implications. You with me? This is, a, this is why Paul uses the illustrative language of circumcision because he's highlighting that in the past there would have been an external marker that would have indicated a person belongs to God. But now Paul's saying that marker, that indicator is an internal work, that God does a renewal work within you and it shows up through you. In other words, you don't prove yourself by what you do. It's by who you are, and then you'll slowly start to prove that out. And this is what he means for the church to see. We aren't changing our lives, and that changes our soul. God has changed our soul, and it shows up through our changed lives. We walk out observable, physical, practical implications because of a supernatural, invisible, spiritual change. Again, this goes back to Jesus' work in our lives, past, present, and future. Draw on your theology. That's what Paul wants the church to do. Draw on your theology. This is the idea of um, the doctrine of justification is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. In other words, we have been given right standing, declared righteous before God. This is that salvation that has taken place. So we are saved from the penalty of sin. And we are being saved. This is the doctrine of sanctification. This is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that is rooting out the parts of our lives that are not fully surrendered to God, right? And we will be saved 
from the presence of sin. There will be a day where sin is no more. I, I think I've told you this story before. When I was in the landscape construction business before God called me to the ministry, I had a big project in Southlake, and the developer of that project had great majestic post oak trees on the property, and he really wanted to highlight and feature uh, those trees because they were so good looking. And yet, when you looked at them from a distance, they looked sharp, but when you got up close, what you realize is that these trees were covered in a native species known as kudzu. And if you're not familiar, kudzu is like a very invasive vine. It has ver a very large trunk at the bottom. It adheres itself to a larger tree. And then it wraps itself around that tree and it fills the branches and then hangs down. And ultimately, what it does is rob that tree of the nutrients that are necessary for it to flourish. And it's ugly. And so this developer asked us, the first thing he wanted us to do was to get the kudzu out of those post oak trees so that he could show the beauty of the property as a whole. And so I sent a crew out there, and the first thing we did was we cut 6 to 12-inch to gaps in that kudzu vine right at the base of the tree. And it took all day because it was everywhere. So we cut large gaps in that kudzu vine right at the base. And then we didn't go back for a couple of weeks. And I remember the developer called me a few days later and he said, hey, I know you guys came out there and started to do some work, but I'm wondering why you haven't come to pull the rest of the vines out of the tree, why you haven't come to cut it all out. And what I told him is, sir, the power source of all of those vines that are all over your trees has been eliminated. It's been severed at the base, and we cut it in a way so that there's no way it could regrow or it could reattach. But as it dies out, we will come back and we will take the painstaking process of slowly starting to pull that vine out of the trees. Well, listen, if you are in Christ Jesus, then the power and the penalty of sin in your life, it's been severed. But the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he slowly gets up in there and starts to pull some of that stuff down. And there will be a day when the only thing that is left is the flourishing, healthy, beauty, beautiful tree of someone who belongs to God in Christ. This is the work of circumcision. This is the spiritual work of what Christ Jesus has done internally, and it shows up in the external parts of our life. This is how Paul concludes the conversation. Pick it up with me in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I think there are several places in the New Testament with very, very powerful language. This might be at the top of that list. I'm going to read it to you again because this is significant for us to see. And you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, not some of our trespasses, not the excusable trespasses, all of our trespasses. And how has he done that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Well, what was the record of debt? And what were the legal demands? Well, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what we earned and the legal demand that came with it was death. 
That's the sentence. That's the debt that we owed. And how was this debt canceled? Now watch. He set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. Disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Think about it like this. When Jesus Christ was on the cross and as those nails pierced his hands, it's as though he looked down and he said, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. I know what you've done. And I'm going to hold all of those sins that you have committed throughout all of your life, past, present, and future. And when I get nailed, they get nailed. And when I die, they're gone. And in that work, God does something supernatural that provides a victory for all of us who belong to him. Which is this. He disarms the rulers and the authorities and he puts them to open shame. By triumphing over them in him, which leads me to the last. As we walk out this life with Christ, we receive the victory of the cross. It's the victory of the cross. There are more than a few mic drop moments in the Bible. uh, But I think this text is one of them. In in fact, I would just say, uh, if there's such a thing as Christian trash talking, like, this is it, baby. That we get to stand with a confidence. Paul says there are three things that Christ has done for us that give us victory. He's disarmed the enemy, he's shamed the enemy, and he's triumphed over the enemy. So you know what we should do? Let's talk a little trash to the enemy, but let God do the heavy lifting. Think about what he's done. First, Satan has been disarmed. He's been disarmed. He can't hurl a single accusation against one of God's children that has any merit of truth or has the power to change our position in Christ. And so we need to stop listening to the wrong voices, memorizing the wrong words. Mary and I, uh, in the car, often listen to music. And so uh, if I'm singing along to a song, but I I don't know the words, I'll make it up. Because I got it like that, you know. And Mary will gently put her hand on my leg and she'll say, that's not what it says. And I say, it does to me. I think some of us need to recognize we've memorized the wrong words because we're listening to the wrong voice. Satan's been disarmed. He can't hurl a single accusation that can change your right standing before God. He's rendered disarmed. His clip is empty. He's firing blanks. And so he has no power over those who belong to God. We need to change the station and memorize the words that are true. The other thing is Satan has been shamed. He's been shamed. Now, I know some of us still feel shame for our sin, but I think the reminder here is that Satan is the one who is shamed because we are the ones who are saved. Now, I'm going to explain this. There's a difference because guilt that leads To shame is the instrument of the enemy as compared to conviction that leads to repentance being the instrument of the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain why. Because guilt that leads to your shame because of what you've done or watch what's been done to you. Guilt that leads to your shame, it is cyclical. There is nothing that you can do with it. There's nowhere for that to go. And that's where the enemy wants you, defeated and discouraged and filled with despair. So he has you guilty, 
And then he wants you mired in shame. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is conviction over our sin, which leads to the action of repentance, which seems to be the redemptive work that God would want to do in the lives of those who belong to him. You with me? So some of you need to change the station. You need to memorize the right song. You need to change what it is that you're listening to. He's disarmed and he is shamed. And he's been triumphed over. Satan has been triumphed over. Simply stated, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. I'm going to say it again because I think some of you are asleep. Simply stated, Jesus wins. Amen, right? And if Jesus wins, then we win in Christ Jesus. And so we stop walking around like we're a defeated foe, and we recognize we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in Christ Jesus. And so I don't know who needs to hear this word today, but look up here at me. Lift your head up. Put your shoulders back. You're not walking in your confidence. You're walking in the confidence of Christ Jesus who has saved you. And he is saving you. And he will save you because God loves you. And he's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. So we're not allowing our shoulders to slump. And we're not going to hang our head navel-gazing anymore. Why? Because we belong to Christ Jesus. And if Jesus wins, we win in him. And you need to know that. We need to walk in that. Because there is power available. And so when Paul says, so as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him, this is what he means. Rooted and being built up, established in him. This is a work that God has done for you and I that we are incapable of providing for ourselves. But it enables us to faithfully, students, seniors, it enables you to faithfully live out this life that he has entrusted to you. I'm so excited for what you're going to get to do next. I hope that you will say yes to every single Jesus adventure that comes your way. Do you realize that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made? God has supernatural plans for you and ways in which he has wired you to do extraordinary things for him. And it is all dependent upon whether or not you choose to walk along his side. So, here's the question. How's your walk? How's your walk with Jesus? Some of you need to recognize you've been captured. You've been held captive by philosophy or empty deceit and it's time for you to recognize that your enemy is defeated and there is victory that is yours in Christ Jesus so how's your walk so as you have received Christ Jesus walk in him if you need to be encouraged or prayed over in your walk with God through Jesus Christ I'm going to give you an invitation you can come forward and we would love to pray with you or for you as you walk with God. For others of you, you need to start your walk. You need to begin a walk with God today. You need to decide today, I, I want this life with God in Jesus Christ. I recognize I cannot head into whatever it is that God has for me next on my own. And so you need to begin a walk with Jesus Christ. Some of you need to join our church because you understand the, the Bible is clear from beginning to end that you're never intended to walk alone, that we walk in community. 
side by side, arm in arm, because we're family, and that's what we do. And so in the best moments and in the worst ones, we walk together in him. Maybe you need to be baptized. You saw those that were baptized today. I have friends that got in those waters today, and I don't know that there's anything more powerful than the public expression of that inward change, right? So because of your boldness and those of you who are willing to be baptized and, and to be celebrated by God's goodness and the evidences of his grace in your life, others of you have been inspired, and we need to schedule your baptism so that God can use your story to inspire and encourage someone else. Come forward and let us know you need to be baptized. This is the invitation, and it's an opportunity to respond. If you need encouragement in your walk, if you need to begin your walk, you want to walk alongside others, then join our church, or you need to be baptized because it's a part of your journey with Jesus, and we need to celebrate the evidence of your life change. Whatever it is that God has spoken to your heart, if you want prayer or you need a moment with a minister, just come forward and let us know about that. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, uh, it'll be our opportunity to worship God and to respond. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you have done. God, I pray now as we enter into this time of invitation that we would be a people obedient to respond to what it is that you have called and in Christ encouraged us to do. God, we recognize we cannot do this without you. We are desperate and dependent upon you. And so we pray to you in the name above every name, in Jesus' name, amen.